Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Wary though we are of hope, having been stung more than once in the past, it does look as if the coronavirus restrictions we've all been living under might finally be on the way out. In about a month, pub gardens will be open and Brits everywhere will unleash their pent-up demand to satiate their pent-up appetite and reclaim their rightful place toward the top of Europe's comparative drunkenness statistics. Uh, this, of course, is good news for taxi companies because someone will need to carry all of our paralytic countrymen back home afterwards. And Uber drivers in particular, of course, for celebration. Not only will they find more employment, but the recent Supreme Court decision afforded at least some of them the rights enjoyed by traditional employees of other companies. And on Tuesday, I think it was this week, Uber itself decided that its drivers are human after all, or at least workers. Uh, but how will their new entitlements to a minimum wage, holiday pay, and crucially for our purposes, a pension, affect the wider gig economy? Specifically, are workplace pensions about to welcome a whole new tranche of employees? What will be the challenges? We'll find out. Next up, the Pensions Regulator has published its draft policy on the use of new powers afforded by the Pension Schemes Act. The ones that caused such a fuss, not least because it was feared that they had been drafted so widely that they could turn the regulator into the pensions equivalent of some third world death squad liable to kick down doors in the middle of the night and disappear unsuspecting trustees on trumped up charges. Uh, the draft policy cleared some of that up, but there are still some concerns about the new powers and how they could be used, appropriated, administered, Why, with wide-ranging consequences, not least for corporate restructures. We will ask whether more can be done to put the industry's pretty head at ease. And then finally, the Department for Work and Pensions euphoniously titled uh, Taking Action on Climate Risk, Improving Governance and Reporting by Occupational Pension Schemes Consultation is now closed. It contains a number of new standards, measurements and reporting requirements, but the Society of Pensions Professionals was not alone in calling for more clarity around several of those, so we'll take a look at uh, the climate for ourselves and ask what there is to be clarified about the Department for Work and Pensions' proposals. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter of Pensions Experts. I'm joined today by a duo from Hyman's Robinson, Patrick Bloomfield, partner, and Victoria Panormo, a senior DC investment consultant. So thank you both very much for joining me. If we kick off with Uber then, um, it's just abandoned its bid to preserve the distinction between gig and real economies. It's afforded its drivers a tranche of workers' rights, not least the right to a pension. Follows the Supreme Court verdict that could send shockwaves through the industry, as if it does become a precedent, it could mean millions of gig economy workers having to be enrolled into workplace pension schemes, which is good for them, but perhaps a headache for schemes and employers that have to enroll them. Um, Victoria, if we kick off with you on this one, your reaction to Uber's decision generally, if, if you would, and um, then we can move on to what it means perhaps for employers and master trusts will be particularly affected, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the interesting decision and I and I guess perhaps surprise in one way and, and not unexpected in others, I guess, in terms of direction of travel. But this highlights again for anyone who is deemed an employee that they have rights to certain benefits based on legislation. So based on their age and salary uh, as an employee, they're in, auto-enrolled into a pension scheme they have contributions paid by an employer and paid by themselves. If we're just focusing on the pensions aspects. As you can imagine, this throws up all sorts of challenges. If we start, first of all, with challenges for the employer, they have to auto-enroll these gig workers. So it means an additional expense to the business. So that's probably tax, national insurance, pensions contributions. And remember, pensions contributions in an AE world is 3% for the employer. This could be a massive burden of cost on the employer in running a business and the, and the administration of that. Master trust providers. Now, there's a potential there that 
more employers, not just Uber, are going to be needing to make pensions contributions that they aren't at the moment. So this increases assets under management for the providers, happy days. It also increases members under administration. And in the case of Uber, they've got 70,000 employees who are about to hit the pension scheme market. This compares to 11 million active members that are already in a master trust in the UK. And most of those are in Nest. So the pension schemes, uh, the providers, at least in the UK, can cope with Uber. But it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds now. I'm not naive to think that what this will do to opt-out rates, they, they might increase, but it might increase member engagement. I hope so. But, you know, there's lots going on here. So for a master trust to accept gig workers from a company, it's not as simple as it might sound if it was a, a single employer and um, bulk transfer or lots of jargon. I'm sure you're all, your listeners are all used to that. There's a recent development that master trusts can, in fact, accept these types of workers. So self-employed, for example, people who are employed by partnerships, you know, such as accountancy firms, lawyers and exceptionally good consultancy firms. By coincidence, Hyman's are a partnership consultancy firm. And uh, we've just implemented a master trust arrangement for our staff and partners. So it can be done. But, you know, the difficulty lies in receiving contributions from individuals and applying those to individuals' accounts rather than the kind of bulky employer-based approach that I was talking about before. We can see that certain providers in the industry, such as Nest, you know, are really good at onboarding these types of clients with really complex payroll complexities. So there are the market's already set up. So some some master trusts are already doing that. So it is entirely possible. Will it become market wide? I'm not sure. I host a regular podcast on our Hyman's Robertson on podcast channel. But you know, I interview a, a number of master trust providers. You know, on on what they're thinking about in the industry. And, you know, the master trust market makes for a very nice Venn diagram of areas that these providers cover. So I think, is it going to become market wide? Maybe not. It ultimately will depend on what the master trust providers model is. So what areas of the market they're covering. And of course, you know, for some, it'll come down to profitability as well. So it's difficult to see how this decision will impact the master trust market at this stage. Sure. And Patrick, do you want to come in on, on this? I mean, obviously, we're talking specifically about the impact uh, of Uber's decision at the moment, with it's 70,000 workers and 70,000 is, is a lot. But I mean, can you foresee this having wider implications for the gig economy generally? And if that is the case, I mean, what would be the impact of that? Not just absorbing Uber's 70,000, but potentially a, a whole range of other employees as well. Uh, yes. Undoubtedly, it, this will ripple right the way across the market. I remember, this is going back a few years now, maybe three or four years ago, going to a meeting with DWP on Tothill Street, where they were trying to tackle what's their strategy for self-employed workers. And gig-employed workers at the time fell into that category. But it's a really muddled bag because it goes all the way from a gig, gig worker at one end through to perhaps a, a barrister who works in chambers who's self-employed at the other end with very different needs very different uh, income levels, taxation, employment status, those sorts of things. 
uh, or employment requirements, I should say, and setups. So this simplifies, I think, a lot of the strategy for DWP that some of the more vulnerable, less catered for um, self-employed individuals will naturally be swept up as part of this change through the gig economy. It probably also quite well fits uh, a treasury aim of, of leveling the playing field in terms of employment costs and whether businesses that were able to use modern business formats such as uh, zero hours contracts and gig working to be able to undercut rivals will now have to come up to a reasonable standard of, of remuneration and employee benefit packages. Uh, and that will be generally seen, I think, as a as a social positive, although the economic impact of it is something that will ripple through to consumers, I'm sure. Good news for DWP, good news for Treasury. There's still questions out there, though, particularly what happens with people like, say, plumbers. So still self-employed, still work in small units, industry uh, recognised, but wouldn't fall into the, the gig economy category. So it's a good step towards tackling the problem, but there's still some difficult ones out there that we need to get onto. Victoria, do, do you want to just one more on this subject, if I may? I mean, is there possible to give us a sense of how big the administrative burden is of enrolling such a large number of people on Master Trust, for example, from a cost perspective? You, I know you mentioned that, say, Nest is, is quite well prepared for this kind of thing. But I mean, what size of a challenge are, are Master Trusts in particular facing here? So I think with administration, the the differentiation comes with administering members with small pots or large pots. And so administering members with really small pots, which, you know, we might be talking about for Uber, for example, if they're not working very many hours with Uber or whatever, we may just have increased the burden of, you know, small pots on the market. And that becomes administratively burdensome and expensive so it has to be done nest are set up very well to receive this type of member but are many of the other providers i don't know technology i think is going to play a big part in this technology is going to be a big part of pensions going forward anyway and member engagement but particularly in this in this scenario so it's one thing we can all look forward to is even more small parts to talk about. Right. We'll move on from that then onto the next subject, and that's the pensions regulator, which has published its draft policy into the use of the new powers afforded in the Pension Schemes Act. They establish two new offences, that of avoiding, avoiding employer debt and risking accrued scheme benefits. The regulator made some attempts to allay concerns there during the consultation around the impact these broad new powers might have, specifying they were not intended to disrupt ordinary business practices uh, and establishing a link between its long-standing contribution notice regime. But experts we spoke to warned that the law remains more far-reaching than its implications and was perhaps advertised and may have impacts in particular on corporate restructuring activity. Um, Patrick, do you want to kick us off on this one? Um, your overall take on the draft powers as they are, I mean, has it successfully allayed concerns? Were those concerns fair to begin with? And, and has it allayed them? I don't think it's ever going to allay the concerns, Benjamin. The concern was that the original policy intent was too broad reaching. And there was the most clearly unified and energetic effort I've ever seen in the industry to engage with the government to get the law redrafted. And it was listened to, but unchanged. There was a lot of debate at the Lords. There was further debate at the Commons, but the government stood strong on this one. There was, uh, was it reasonable? I think the, the industry 
was perhaps unfairly viewed out of the corner of, uh, of government's eye saying, you're just trying to protect your own back here, boys and girls, because you might be connected or associated persons and you don't want to be opened up for this. Well, actually, we think you should be and we think that you should act with due propriety. And I think that really missed the point. The issue here was about if businesses with defined benefit pension schemes find other organisations, particularly banks and providers of finance, less willing to do business with them because the risks associated with having a pension scheme have dialed up, then that's detrimental for business. That's detrimental for UK competitiveness. And it's it's making uh, the, the playing field even more unfair for those who have DB schemes compared to those who don't. And um, if we were to roll back and cover the, what these concerns were in the first place. Now, as I understand it, and as I understood it, having, having written about this before, this is largely due to the fact, isn't it, that there is simply no guarantee in the way that it's worded that the regulator will only restrict itself to established forms of, of criminality and not intrude upon, for instance, what is currently considered normal business activity. I mean, the offensive of risking accrued benefits seems to be a, an incredibly broad one. And it's to a degree retroactive, I believe, from, from the, the final form of it. So if, if the government were to do this again, or if it were to revisit the issue or try and offer more clarity, what would it need to do to help put some of these concerns together? Well, I think, Benjamin, that one of the most cited concerns I've heard is that guidance from the pensions regulator of this nature has no standing in court. So TPR could write till the cows come home and people still might not be comforted by it because when push comes to shove, it's not what a judge is going to consider. And that's why there was so much energy put into trying to change things at the when the act was drafted but that's that's come and gone we are where we are and we need to we need to work with it and take it forward and actually there it's a good consultation from tpr i think it's been really helpful on some of the things it's clarified and and tying it to the contribution notice regime uh, and the six-year look back period and, and things like that has been quite helpful in in helping everybody understand how this is likely to get applied day one but we still have those enduring issues about um, whether any misdemeanor or event gets viewed with the benefit of hindsight, whether there are shifts in what's considered normal business practice, so that something that was a normal business practice a couple of years ago might not be considered to be normal now, and someone is is, is subject to some sort of activity or regulatory intervention again against them. It's particularly, this is criminalising things and criminalising activities that trustee directors or directors of companies might undertake. And there's, there's a huge amount of weight in TPR's consultation around the lack of a reasonable excuse or the deliberate intent to do something. And that's really interesting. I think those will be the key points that um, the cases start to turn on. But what we will ultimately need is case law for this to get built out. So there's some sort of legal standing of how this operates rather than it being TPR giving an indication to what they might do. Pity the person who has to help establish that case, I suppose. But... um. We can move on finally then to lingering concerns uh, after the Department for Work and Pensions climate change consultation uh, closed. The industry was broadly welcoming of a number of the new measures contained uh, within it, but there are several outstanding concerns. The new rules have been said to need a bit more clarity. There is a risk of herd mentality when it comes to metrics and targets in particular. Victoria, do you want to kick us off on this one then, sort of more broadly, I suppose, on, on these whole tranche of new measures for, for tackling climate change that, that the Department for Work and Pensions is coming out with? Presumably, they're quite 
expensive to implement. There's a whole range of new responsibilities on, say, trustees. They have to demonstrate clear knowledge and understanding and all the rest of it. I mean, where are we at with this? And, and I mean, is it clear enough in your mind? Is there more that could be done to clarify points on climate change? Um, interestingly enough, actually, I dedicated yesterday to doing the reading that I've been piling up on responsible investment and ESG and getting straight in my head what that timeline of of legislation looks like and the requirements. And you could, I mean, there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down and there's just such a vast amount of information out there. I think where we are is that this legislation is is here. It's being inbuilt in what pension schemes are doing and what they need to do in the future. Um, and I think it's for the good of the economy. The, we need the economy to recognise the importance of the environment and establishing that within an institutional environment in the kind of financial constraints is is absolutely the way to go but there's lots out there and trustees need to have um, some good advice but they also need to take a measured approach to this and and I, I laughed when you were talking about metrics used within the um, within this context because I know that that is a subject very close to Patrick's heart. We can come to Patrick on that then. I mean, in fact, that was in fact going to be my uh, next question. I mean, trustees are required, I think, to demonstrate knowledge and understanding. And they have two tests, I think it is now, to fulfill. They have to choose two metrics to go by, one emissions-based and one, I don't remember what the basis is for the other one. It seems to me when I've read into this before that the industry hasn't quite decided what the metrics are to use. So how are the trustees supposed to do so? So there's, we're at an interesting place on this. And I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table personally first as well. I'm a convert. I see myself as a a financial services climate activist. I personally believe that the transition steps that will need to be taken around climate will be financially material for just about every business. So they will be financially material for just about every pension scheme investment. So, and the herd mentality point, if I could pick up on that first, the the bigger concern to my mind, which I think this is where DWP is coming from in, in saying what it said, is that... It's just a form to fill in. It's a disclosure to supply. It's information to gather, pop it into a template, send it out to the public, and that's your job done. That would be so wildly away from what's needed. It would be really, really disappointing. What's needed is for pension scheme trustees, DB and DC, to properly get to grips with the fact that climate risk is an existential challenge that is fundamentally going to affect government policy fiscal policy, monetary policy, associated workplace legislation over the next 30 years. And that's going to affect the value of those businesses, the money that they make, the returns that they make for their owners and their bondholders. And that's something that everyone needs to engage with. How are your asset managers going to be thinking about that? How are you going to be thinking about it? Are you properly safeguarding members' interests? And TCFD in that context is then a really useful framework for setting about thinking about it and for explaining to other people what you've done. But if you go into it thinking, oh, the job I've got to do here is fill in a TCFD disclosure, you've missed the point. The job should be, wow, there's a really big new risk on the block that we weren't really thinking about before properly. Oh, TCFD, there's a handy template. Let's put the two together and do it properly. The metrics and targets piece, um, DWP and I think FCA have got the same issue as well of not really wanting to stifle creativity in the market. 
And the more they start to hone in on a particular couple of metrics, the more it will deter people from investing in other things and from innovating around this space. So they're, they've got a real tightrope to walk. I've terrible sympathy for them here. That um, the, the need to make it easier for people to get to the races and to start disclosing this information. But if they make that too easy, then will, uh, will we see a number of providers falling asleep at the wheel and just churning out the numbers and trustees similarly ticking the boxes and passing it on through to members? Just a word on DC is that I actually think that members want to see this in their pension scheme as well. So it's a really great member engagement point. And we're always looking for member engagement points within DC. And I think this is an opportunity that shouldn't be wasted. I think like Patrick, there are many members, I would go so far as to say most, that want to see something reflected in their pension scheme investments. And so this is an opportunity and it isn't just to comply with legislation and regulation. Excellent. That brings us to the close of the the principal part of the programme. Now, I I should have mentioned this in the introduction. I I hope I'm not ambushing you, Patrick, but we tried to finish with this always a pensions angle. Patrick, if you have an always a pensions angle for us, please go ahead. I, I have an always a pensions angle for you. And in fact, I've got two pensions angles for you both being tenuously drawn out of the same story. So they both come out of Uber and they go in opposite directions, or certainly in different ones. One of them is back in the days when I used to travel into the office and occasionally take a black cab around around town, I'd often get the cabbie saying, what do you do for a living? And would have the conversation about I work in pensions and then I'd then tell me about their pension or the second home that they had or sometimes the previous marriages and Lord knows what else. So there's something to look forward to here about people getting in the back of an Uber are now having the conversation about pensions with um, with a freshly pensioned new Uber driver wondering what on earth it's all about. So I'm looking forward to that. And I think that's, that's the engagement point that Victoria talked about, that the more people get involved in pensions, the more this crops up as a conversation, the more normal it becomes. At the moment, if someone said, do you want to come to my house for a dinner party, we're going to talk about pensions? Maybe we'll go, maybe not. No, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> we'll, we'll just get half a step closer. The other direction I'd like to pull it in was um, I heard on uh, on a radio program this morning, uh, a managing director of Uber uh, being asked how they were going to cover the costs of this. And his round the house's answer was basically out of future growth and future profits. And that struck a chord with me about everything that we're doing on pensions at the moment at a national level. We're expecting our children and our children's children and our children's children's children to pay for themselves in their own retirement and to pay for us in our retirement and to pay for whoever's still standing from our parents and our grandparents in their retirement as well. So this sense of a massive accumulator bet falling on future generations to deal with everybody wanting to put up their feet when they're old but still capable of working and have a high level of their previous working income provided to them, I think is a theme that we're shying away from. And that's something that is going to have to get tackled in the build back better economic discussions that will be going on at Treasury around pensions. Excellent. Well, two Uber angles going in opposite directions, not entirely unlike two actual Ubers when you get them in my experience. But um, thank you very much for that. Uh, Thank you both very much for joining me. That does bring us to the end of the program. Thank you to our listeners for listening. We will see you again in two weeks time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 